Support for The Bittersweet Life comes from HarperCollins, presenting The Angel of Rome by Jess Walter, a stunning collection of tender and brilliant stories about the moments when life changes you, for the better or the worse. It just keeps happening, Rome, over and over, the city reinventing itself for each new generation. And us, too, I suppose, if we have the courage and the people to show us the way. That's Eduardo Ballerini reading from The Angel of Rome, the latest story collection by best-selling author Jess Walter. A starred Kirkus review says that you should prepare for delight. And you should. The Angel of Rome by National Book Award finalist Jess Walter. Available now wherever books or audiobooks are sold. Welcome to Rome. This is The Bittersweet Life with Katie Sewell and Tiffany Parks. Hello, this is The Bittersweet Life. I'm Katie Sewell. I'm Tiffany Parks. And we are sitting in Tiffany's car outside of a very imposing gate because what exactly are we up to today? We are about to enter the grounds of Villa Aurora, also known as the Casino di Boncompagni Ludovisi. Right. So if you're a long-time listener to this show, you know we've talked about this villa before. We've also talked about the princess inside this villa. Do you want to remind us? Obviously, we're going to meet her and we'll have her introduce herself as well. But do you want to give us a quick reminder of what people might have heard? Yes. We talked about this on episode... <laughs> I say this so so uh, confidently, like I know it off the top of my head. A recent episode in the last couple of months, we talked about... Princess Rita, the American and in fact Texan princess who married in to the very important Ludovisi Boncompagni family. Right. And her villa was one that was recently put up for auction and did not sell. And please do go back and listen to that episode about, although you are going to learn a lot about the villa, even more than we told you then, because we're about to walk through it and take you with us. But this villa is being put up for auction the first time it went to auction it did not sell it has a very famous caravaggio in it the only caravaggio that's painted into the ceiling of a building which makes this house very priceless just for that reason alone but it did not sell and of course we thought it would sell and there was no way i was ever going to set foot in this because it would trade into private hands and yet and yet here we are I know. I mean, I guess nobody has 300 million lying around that they want to, uh, you know, in small change to pick up this villa, this priceless villa full of art. Well, we are a little early. What do you think we should do? Should we just ring the bell or would it be terribly rude for us to... Is there a bell? She said something about ringing a bell. There is a bell. I see one over there against the wall. I can go ring it. I mean, but maybe maybe we should wait. I mean, maybe she's putting her tiara on and he needs time. <laughs> yeah, I, I don't think she wears a tiara, but we'll find out. Maybe when she's home. <laughs> I found a picture of her on Google with a tiara, oh. but it's probably like it was a special occasion type thing. Yeah, and you've been here before. Um, so how excited would you say you are to be setting foot on here again? I'm very excited because it's it's a unique place in the world. There's no place else that's like this. And I'm very excited that you're going to get to see it. And... I'm excited to, you know, have this conversation with with Princess Rita, hear her side of the story, and just, yeah, get to experience this magical place again. Okay. 
Well, I'm going to stop for now until we ring that bell. Okay. Okay. Okay, we're going in. There's this big brick wall to our left that's like, not even a wall. What would you call that? It's like a rocky outcropping. Okay, and here we are. I may leave my, my backpack in the car. Okay. I think we'll be safe here. I think so. <laughs> I don't think we're going to have our car broken into. Get out of here. Rita's receiving room, which has some very old-looking furniture. I don't know how old it actually is, but it's sort of like satin-covered, old-fashioned type chairs and tiny sofas. and Very low to the ground. Yes, there's some paintings. I, I want to say that's the, uh, you know, one of the cardinals of the family. There's a painting of a cardinal right across from us. But the ceiling is really beautiful, and I believe it's a frescoed ceiling with with angels and country scenes, and I, I want to say it's either Domenichino or Pomerancho, but I'm gonna have to, I'm gonna have to ask the princess because I can't remember. Yeah, it's always so interesting to be in a house this old and have it also covered with just normal photographs of like you, you took at a family reunion. Lots of family photographs here. Yeah, it's sort of like generations coming together, you know, because mm-hmm. you've got the family portraits, the old family painted portraits on the walls, and then so many portraits of family members and cute babies and even dogs uh, in photographs on the tables. Hello. How are you? Should we wear masks? No. Hello. <laughs> Hi. How are you? Nice to meet you. Hello. Hello. Thank you for doing this. Please sit down. Okay. I'm sorry it's a little chilly in here. Do you have water in Oh, perfectly fine. Uh, so for maybe first to start, tell us who you are. I am Rita Boncompagni Ludovisi. And where are we right now? You're at Villa Aurora in the middle of Rome. Tell us just a little bit of background. How old is Villa Aurora? It's 500 years old. You live here all the time, right? Yes, yes. What is it like to live in a 500-year-old building? Um, well, I moved here to marry Niccolò. We were so in love, and still are, really. So it was the 20th happiest years of my life, but it's also an, a big responsibility, an honor and a responsibility to restore the villa. And uh, I have digitized 150,000 documents with the help of Rutgers University. They funded it. We finally finished it after 13 years. Mm. And Corey Brennan, uh, Professor Brennan, was the Mellon Scholar, and he was invaluable. He's the curator of the archives. So what kind of things would be in those archives? I mean, obviously... Well, it goes back a thousand years, so... Give us a few examples from the different centuries. The, the Boncompagni came here in 980 with Emperor Otto II, from whom they descend. There are only five families that have this distinction in Italy, the Boncompagni, the Ravisi, the Orsini, the Aliata, and the Pinatelli. And also, when Italy took away all the titles, they couldn't take the titles away from those five families kind of interesting because they came from the Holy Roman Empire. Oh. So um, other people became titled 
I don't know, in the 18th century and such as that. So it's kind of uh, rather interesting. Not know that little nugget of history because I know that when Italy became a republic, most I thought all Italian nobles lost their titles, but not true. Not true of these five families because they they didn't come from the Italian aristocracy. They came from the Holy Roman Empire. So it's different. If the Holy Roman Empire had taken away their titles, then that would be one thing. But not 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 the the five families I mentioned. I'm curious about what it was that first motivated you to open up the villa to visitors, because I, I believe that it was you who first had that idea. Yes, it was in the New York Times, says, uh, U.S.-born princess opens villa for the first time <laughs> in 2010. And I had to convince my husband this is the right thing to do, and he said, but we live here, blah, blah, blah. I said, I know, but they need to see all the wonders and the splendor of this home. And so he agreed. And later he told me, I'm so grateful you did that. He said, I've met so many interesting people. Outside of his little group, he's met people from all over the world. He was very happy about that. But why did you want to do that? Because I can understand the, the motivation to keep your house private also. So yeah, I understand that. Well, I made select times that I would do the tours. And sometimes it would be every day or sometimes a couple of times a week. But they weren't always here. You know, I mean, they weren't always going through the villa. So probably... I would say that I think that art is universally important for everyone. And I think it should be something like the only ceiling painting ever done by Caravaggio, or this ceiling that was featured at the Grand Palais in Paris, and also at the Prado Museum in Madrid. The curator at, at the Grand Palais said this is the finest representation of 17th century landscape art in the world. So that's by Guercino, Brio, Viola, Domenichino, and Cinder Pomperancio. And this is where they had a contest to see who would paint the ceiling of the other room. Guercino won. Guercino. Yeah. So he painted the Aurora, which is considered his masterpiece in the other room. The house is so much more than the Caravaggio. You know, everybody focuses on the Caravaggio, but it's much more than that. Yeah. He was a genius, and once we had um, five Nobel Prize winners here from the Vatican. They came here for dinner, and I remember we were in the Caravaggio room, and I said, well, you know, Caravaggio was a genius, and geniuses are never accepted in their own time. And they started laughing so hard they were crying, and I said, oh, that's right, you're all geniuses. You know? <laughs> <laughs> And incidentally, my husband was a genius, too. He uh, graduated third in his class from um, ETH in Zurich, which is the School for Geniuses. It's where Einstein attended school. And he graduated with his degree in chemical engineering. And the least of what he was was a prince. He spoke seven languages fluently. He could pick up any language. And he was brilliant. I remember 20 years ago, he told me, he said, you know, hydrogen fuel is the fuel of the future. He could see so many things. I always feel like he was Al Pacino and the third godfather saying, I keep trying to get out and they keep pulling me back in, you know? I feel like he was um, uh, trapped by this, the title and such as that. He wanted to become a doctor. That was his big desire. I mean, he was so smart, so intelligent, and very kind, very good person, a lovely person. And I remember that um, he said that he told his father, oh, I'm graduating, and I'm third in my class, which is a big deal at ETH. You know, it's like MIT. And his father said, what am I now, the father of a chemical engineer? <laughs> that is a, it's a little different, because also he went through high school in Zords in, in Switzerland. So he had a much different mentality. And also his grandmother, his maternal grandmother, was fully British. So he, he spoke with a beautiful British accent, and he really always uh, had an, kind of an Anglo-Saxon approach to life. 
which is interesting, Mm -hmm. the mixture, you know. At what age did he inherit and become the prince? At birth. Oh, at birth. When you're a prince of the Holy Roman Empire, uh, all your children and all your grandchildren and your wives become princes or princesses. That's not true of all the families. For instance, there's one prince of the Borghese family, Scipione, now. And he's the head prince of, the, of that family. And then the others, those who in New York call themselves Prince Borghese, they're not. They're whatever their name is, you know, Don. And they're called Don, the name, Borghese, of the princely family. Mm-hmm. And it used to irk Niccolo so much because he sacrificed so much because of this always having that title. And I remember him saying to one man who always called himself a prince, but his brother was the, the head of the family. He was of the princely family. And uh, he said to him, why, Carlo, why do you go over to New York and tell everybody you're a prince? Isn't it enough that you're of the princely family and that you're brothers, <laughs> you know? But it used to and, and make him very upset. And so that's the only thing I ever saw him upset about is when people would pretend to be something that they're not because he sacrificed so much for this, uh, being born into this milieu, I guess. In the modern day, like, what does it, it mean for him? Like, what did he have to sacrifice? What does it mean to be the prince now? Because, uh, well, today, I think because uh, most Italians out and out feel a little bit of hostility towards people that hold their titles in such esteem. Because they're got, you know, 1940, what, nine or six? 1946, we became a republic, so... Uh, and and I understand that. I understand that. Um, I think when you say prince or princess or whatever, immediately your more general public would think, oh, so what? You know, that kind of thing. <laughs> so it's not so prestigious anymore. Still, some people hold it in esteem. I mean, I certainly respect it very much. But I remember when I was studying all the history of the family and everything, because I'm a historian by training, and so it was fascinating to me because my mentor in college was Claudio Segre. And Claudio Segre was Emilio Segre's son. And Emilio Segre worked with Fermi at Los Alamos on the atom bomb. And he won a Nobel Prize. And I was walking down Via Pinciana in the building just back here, which was all Ludovisi Gardens. None of those buildings were there. And I tripped over this gold medallion on the ground, and it said Elena Segre, the grandmother of my mentor. But it did mean something very sad. You know, you see how life intersects in so many ways uh, as you go on. But it also meant that she was taken away from here, from that building, and sent to Auschwitz, where she died. Mm-hmm. So it's really, it was poignant, bittersweet, because I thought, my gosh, that's uh, Claudia Segre's grandmother. And as I said, if we're open-minded enough to or aware, I think everyone's life does that. You intersect with people from your past that you never imagined it might happen. And I remember when I, uh, my parents sent me here when I was 16, right after I'd graduated from high school, I went to the Trevi Fountain and I said, I love Rome and I love Italy. I hope that I marry an Italian. <laughs> it took many decades before that happened, but nonetheless, isn't that funny? I love that. I love when things like that come around. In fact, I wanted to ask you because I was reading your resume and I saw that when you were in, I believe, doing your master's, your thesis was on you know, Italian history from Garibaldi to Mussolini. Because okay. I was so fascinated how a country that had become a republic in the 20th century, basically, well, even before that, but, but officially in the 1940s, uh, could segue into becoming a fascist state with Il Duce. It was fascinating to see the progression. My thought was, you know, here you were, you know, young woman fascinated with Italian culture and Italian history. Did that influence your fate 
to become maybe. the princess of a, such an important Italian family, one of the most important. Maybe, I think. <laughs> it could have, but I remember my father, when I graduated from school, from uh, college, he said, what are you going to do with this degree? What are you? <laughs> and I thought, oh, if you'd only live long enough to see it, you know. <laughs> that actually makes me um, want to ask, what did your friends back home think when you told them you were going to marry a prince? I mean, it's a, it's a fairy book story. It is a fairy tale, I guess, if you see it, you know, in that regard. For me, I just fell in love with someone, and we loved each other so deeply. And uh, it reminded me of this book I read years ago called The Road Less Traveled. The author says, if you never really connect with another human being on a deep level, love-wise, you know, and you deeply love another person, you never are a fully realized dimensional person. And what he said is you see yourself reflected back in the eyes of the person you love. And it makes you feel dimensional. Because, you know, when, when we need to see behind us, we have to hold a mirror to see, you know, to be dimensional. But right now, we're just one-dimensional to ourselves. And so I thought, that's so wise. And I never realized, and then I was so lucky to have met Niccolò and realized what it really means to love and to be loved deeply. It changed my life, really. And he said I changed his life, too. He told all of his friends, I've never been happier in my life. I'm not necessarily a believe in love at first sight type of person. Well, this, uh, this time. <laughs> Did it really? Was yeah. it from the moment you met? It was, uh, he picked me up at the Grand Flora Hotel, and he had called me because he'd read an article about me in Cranes called uh, New York Power Broker, because I'd sold over a billion dollars worth of commercial real estate. He called, and, and then um, his friend called, and I said, for heaven's sakes, everybody in New York calls himself a count or a prince or something, you know? <laughs> and, I said, <laughs> and I said, I just, I can't do it. Then he called me himself, and he was so charming. And I said, okay, I can come for three days, but that's it. And I have to fly back to Boston. And so he said, all right. And I came. It was, it was, oh, and a, a clairvoyant had um, told me this out of the blue. He was a friend of a friend of mine, had come to visit me. He said, you're not going to marry the man you're engaged to right now. And I went, oh, probably not. I said, I'm not, I don't like him that much. I said, and then he said, um, uh, but you're going to marry a European, and you're going to live in Europe for the rest of your life. Not Italy, but Europe. And he said, you'll know him when you see him. He's going to have a long cashmere coat on, a dark blue cashmere coat on and one of those hats, you know, that, like they used to wear in the 40s, the men. Mm -hmm. He always wore one of those hats. And so he, he came to pick me up at the Grand Flora, and I was waiting outside, and here's this man. He, he emerged from his car with long cashmere coat and that hat. And I was, like, flabbergasted because I, you know, uh, I thought, my goodness, uh, you know, he's really... That's exactly what this clairvoyant said a number of years ago. It wasn't recently. And I had forgotten about it. And I even asked the clairvoyant, I said, do you want to be paid for a reading or something? He said, no, no. He said, my mother, my grandmother, my great-grandmother, they all had this gift. Isn't that amazing? So I'd forgotten completely about it. And then when I saw Niccolo, I was like, oh, my gosh. And then um, uh, I got into the car, and he said, oh, thank goodness you're not ugly. And I said, is that a compliment? <laughs> and he said, oh, yes, I should. I've stuck my whole leg into my mouth, you know. And he was so nervous. But it was charming, really. And then that was it. We didn't do the hotel that he wanted on his property outside of Rome, but we got married. So that was <laughs> How quick was it from when you met to when you got married? It was a bit of time because uh, he, had, he had been separated for quite some time from his Russian wife, his second wife. And then um, it was about four years for that to take place. And then after that, 
another two years for the annulment. So it was a big, long process, as you know here. It goes, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. it goes on and on and on. So we, we married, let's see, I came here in 2002. I met him in 2002. I moved here in 2003, and we got married in 2007. But we felt like we were married anyway. Yeah. I mean, he had never moved into the villa, and so it was the first time he had been here and uh, actually moved in. And we began immediately to try and restore it. And uh, it's been really a labor of love and sometimes uh, very, very frustrating, but still uh, we felt or we feel like we're little grains of sand in this long history of this house. As you go from Cardinal Francesco Nero first, then Cardinal Francesco de Monte, and then on to Ludovico Ludovici, Cardinal Ludovico Ludovici, the nephew of Pope Gregory the Fifteenth, and so kind of interesting. But as I said, this family came here in 980, and their original name was Dragon von Saxon. But the people of Spoleto, where they placed them originally, could not acclimate to that very Germanic name, Dragon von Saxon. So they changed it, Bon Compagni, good friend or good companion. Hmm. Isn't that interesting? Yeah, that is interesting. So when you are first brought to the villa, the first time you ever see it, what state is it in? Pretty pitiful. (laughs) It was just locked up, cobwebs. It it had been uh, abandoned uh, since his uh, father died, and he died in the 80s. And then my husband used an office up on the top floor, but everything else was just, you know, in disarray. And so um, he said, you really want to do it? I said, yeah, let's do it. So we did. So it was your idea to come and live here? Well, he said, do you want to go live there? And I said, because uh, we had begun living in a hotel. And the grand, let's see, what was it called? The Rose Garden. I think it's owned by his cousin. But anyway, we paid. <laughs> <laughs> and and uh, it's right across from the American Embassy on Via Boncompagni. And we said, well, we've got to make different plans. And so he said, let's go look at Villa Aurora. Would you? It's a huge home. And we could make it, you know, a, a really cozy place to live. And so we came here, and I said, well, why not, with all the history and everything? And then um, I found the letters. The first things I took out of this old trunk were letters from Marie Antoinette and Louis XVI, 25 letters. Mm-hmm. And so, um, and then there were letters from all the heads of the various nobility in Europe, because they were also from the Holy Roman Empire. Mm-hmm. And in fact, my husband, he's the head the main head of the Bongamani Ludovici family. There are other offshoots uh, who pretend to be the head, but he was the head. <laughs> he, he was the 12th Prince of Piombino. So. And I hope this isn't a touchy subject, but who is the head now? His eldest son, Francesco. And he would be the 13th Prince then, is that correct? But his beloved grandson, Gregorio, that handsome young man over there, he will be the head of the family. My husband had hoped to skip this generation and go on to Gregorio. Interesting. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it has been interesting, believe me. But, uh, <laughs> but but nonetheless, I mean, believe me, a friend of mine called me uh, from Washington, this congressman I know, and he said, you should watch Succession. It's a big hit here, and it sounds like what you're going through. So I rented it on Apple, and I was watching it, and I called back, and I laughed, and I said, this looks like child's play compared to this. Are you kidding? This is Machiavellian, you know, any means to an end and everything else. So, (laughs) How much are you willing to talk about what's been going on with the two of you? Or not even the two of you, with the family? Well, it's not the family. I'm very close to Gregorio, Mm -hmm. who'll be the head of the family, who's 25. I I meet with him frequently. He's quite ashamed of uh, the way his uh, uncle has acted. And um, 
I'm loath to talk about it because I don't think it's good to air a family dirty laundry in public, basically. But I, suffice it to say, I have never been so harassed or attacked or sued or anything else in my entire life. And so I've never been sued in, in, while I lived in New York or in Texas or anywhere. Never. Not one time. And here it's continual. You keep getting a thing at the gate. You know, they're suing about this and suing about that. It's astonishing. And he warned me, my husband warned me, because I said, oh, I really fell in love with your children and your grandchildren. I just really, you know, fell in love with them. He went, no, no, no. They're just waiting for me to die. And, and you know, one of his sons, who at the time of his death, on March 8th in 2018, told me he was in New York and couldn't get out because there was a blizzard. Well, there really was a blizzard in New York. But he wasn't in New York. He was in London and just didn't come. And so you... The one that pretended to love him so much. And so I saw how hurt he was in his final years by his children. That's something I can't forgive. I, I'm pretty, I'm fairly easy to get along with. I agreed to whatever they wanted to do. Okay, my husband left me 50% if we were to sell the house and the right of use for life. However, I said, all right, let's just, there are four of us, let's do it evenly and call it a day if we do sell the house and such as that. And, um, and I said, you won't have to wait that long for me to die. So I said, you know, just, <laughs> and all of that. And I was very easy to get along with. And I, we took them to New York. We, we did so many fun things with them. And uh, now one of the sons said, he was interviewed, oh, oh, I hardly know her, or something like that. And even his wife, whom I had been so friendly with, and I love her parents, actually, um, said unpleasant things. And I haven't. So I've resisted it. Because I certainly could. If the press would do a nexus lexus on them, believe me, <laughs> it wouldn't be pleasant. But I've avoided saying anything, but now I'm a little fed up. You know, it's gone on for too long, going into the fifth year of this ridiculous stuff. I mean, it's just absurd to waste your time on this toxicity. I've never understood, and you don't need to go into this if you, if you, if you feel like you've said enough, but I've never understood if you were granted the right to live here, why you would need to, why would you be pushed to sell? How is that legal? I don't think it's legal. I don't think it's legal. When I received the notice, September 2nd, we received the notice that there would be an auction. And I said, how can they do this? To my lawyer, I said, I have the right of use for life. And the, the boys were claiming, no, we had two donations that we got, and that gives us two-thirds of the property, and she gets a third, and this, that, and the other. No, no. My husband's will said she has the right to live in the entirety of the house, and all the silverware and uh, china and everything else would, would be at her use until her death. And so, and, and I had uh, had Oxford University and also um, the University of Indiana, Dr. Bernie Frischer, and they've done a 3D imaging of the entire, entire garden. It looks like a lawnmower, and they run it over the entire, and they found Julius Caesar's villa beneath us <laughs> that, that begins back there where all those buildings are, like the Eden Hotel. That was all Ludovici Gardens. Ludovici Gardens was 42 hectares in size, or 86.9 acres, so it was gigantic. Hmm. And um, the Julius Caesar's villa runs all the way beneath here, out into the street behind us, Aurora. It's amazing when you see it. You see the actual rooms and everything that they have had underneath here. And they said this is where he roams Cleopatra. So this was the Gardens of Solace that all of this was built upon. So the Gardens of Solace go back to Roman time. 
Do they have any plans ever to excavate around the villa? Oh, I don't know. They did for a while. They excavated something over here. That's how, how we knew there was something here years ago. Because every time there's a new government, there's a new minister of culture. So then you have, <laughs> and this is a National Historic Monument. And now it's been picked by Google, uh, along with the Taj Mahal and such as that, as a cultural destination. But nonetheless, I think... Oh, it's been exhausting. What was your question? I'm sorry. I digress. I think, I think you answered it. I asked how it could possibly be legal for them to force no, to sell the house at auction. So, which leads and me... Also, the auction is that, is that they're doing it online. The auction house, you should look it up. The auction house auctions off boats and scooters and bicycles and confiscated Nike tennis shoes and things like that. I mean, if you're going to auction off a house that is supposed to be the most expensive residence in the world at a half a billion, I think you go to Christie's or Sotheby's. Right. You know, I think you do. And then they said, well, we sent it to, I asked them, I said, you know, I was a member of the Real Estate Board of New York. I sold Donald Trump the General Motors building. And I said, I think that I could help you if you're going to do this, and I have no choice about it, maybe I can help you qualify people. You have to qualify people. You can't just bring them into a house like this. Mm -hmm. And so they were very, oh, these people have to be anonymous. Like, I'm the person who's lived here for 20 years, right? And, it's, and so I just gave up. I said, you know, it's like going against a boulder, trying to put a, push a boulder up a hill. I just finally said, well, maybe I'm relieved because there cannot be any more of these back room, closed door, things going on that, that I suspect have gone on this whole time. And so I just said, fine. It, it's been on every, all of our continents, all seven continents. And it's been in China. And it's been in Russia. It's been everywhere. And I think they didn't count on that. And then everyone came here to interview me because I'm the one who's living here. Mm -hmm. And so I think that that um, upset the apple cart a lot. But I don't believe it will sell on June 28th at the next auction. That, because how do people get in? Uh, seven, about six or seven journalists have told me they have tried desperately to get online to look at things, and they can't get online. And these are very intelligent people. Hmm. So if they can't get online, how does someone from China or Russia or America or anywhere else, there was a man here on the day the first auction took place that was willing to buy at the highest price. And he's worth $62.5 billion. And a personal friend of his called me and said, you know, he was there. And I said, well, I didn't know it. I would have brought him in to see the villa. But he finally walked away in disgust because he couldn't get online. He couldn't this and that. And you had to register beforehand. And you had to have a number to get online. And so he just, uh, he walked away and he said, I don't want to have anything to do with this auction. Is that the hope, really? That for uh, you personally, that it never sells? No, no. No, I'm tired of this. I'm tired of being sued every minute. I'm tired of the system, which is been very uh, unhelpful and unjust. And um, I really think, um, you know, I keep thinking of that Martin Luther King uh, quote that says that the moral universe has a very high arc. I know I'm paraphrasing it, but there is a turn, it goes towards justice eventually. So I think that I keep thinking of that, but I've never been treated so unjustly. I've never been treated with such harassment in my life ever. And I'm not a complainer, and I don't want anyone to see me as a victim because I'm not. I had 20 wonderful years here, and I was able to have Oxford University and 
um, the University of Indiana with uh, Bernie Frischer and uh, Professor Corey Brennan, who has helped me do our 150,000 documents going back 1,000 years. And my husband wrote me, I was giving um, a talk at Harvard in 2016, I think. Nicola couldn't come because by then he was really quite um, physically weak, but mentally always very sharp. I mean, the day he died, he was reading about quantum physics and we were discussing it because we're both, both voracious readers. So, you know, it was so much fun to always just be alone with him uh, to talk all the time. It was a joy. And so, nonetheless, and here I go digressing again, <laughs> off topic. But anyway, I remember, he, oh, he sent me an email. He said, you know, I was looking at all you've done with the archives over these years, and he said, you are the pillar of my family. He said, you have done more than anybody ever has. He said, my other wives couldn't care less about the archives or anything else. And he said, look what you've done. And I was writing a book, too. I've written a book with Professor Brennan. We've done this 400-page book. We've put in all of the ceilings and everything. So uh, whatever happens here, this will, you know, for posterity, will be there for people to see. Mm -hmm. And I'll dedicate that to Nicolò because he gave his life for this family in this house and has not been appreciated by his sons. And I, I feel like saying, grow up. Okay, your parents divorced. And I don't know how you were raised or whatever with great anger, but your father always loved you. He always had you every, every other weekend with him at his place, and he loved you. And I think they love him too. It's a strange kind of thing. It's rather, rather astonishing to, to observe how money, this kind of money, changes people. I said, but how many fathers leave a billion-dollar piece of property to their children? A. B, there's another property outside of Rome that's worth, I don't know, 40 or 50 million that his sons very skillfully um, <laughs> spirited away from him. But that's another story, and that will be known someday, too. I just went out of this toxicity. And I, I think they'll have their own karma what they did to their father, how they hurt him. They tried to have him declared incompetent. And, he, and the psychiatrist, the leading psychiatrist of the court came in and analyzed him, tested him, and he said, I'm sorry, but he's totally competent. He's totally capable of taking care of himself and his everything. And so this, the judge, when we went in, I'll never forget it, and she said to um, the youngest son who had taken the thing of incompetency. We found out later on the other brothers were behind him doing it. But they always stepped behind the youngest one, having him do all of the uh, falderall in front. And then they, it's like, oh, it was him. You know, it wasn't us. And uh, I remember um, the judge said to Bonte, why are you doing this in the court? Why are you doing this to your father? And he said, uh, and then the old eldest son, Francesco, said, because he needs money like that. <laughs> And so we didn't know that the other boys were behind it, encouraging him to do this. Mm. But when their father found out, he was devastated. And I remember one of the boys came here. They spoke perfect English, and he said to, to Niccolo, um, why don't you disown Bonte? Why don't you disown Bonte? And his father just looked at him in such a strange way. He said, because he stole chairs from your villa, and uh, Francesco has all of that on tape, where he's taking the, the, thing, the, the, the chairs out. And later, Niccolo and I were talking. I said, well, you know, you can't do that. He has two beautiful children. They deserve to be a part of it. And he said, no, I would never do it. Hmm. He said, I wouldn't do it. But, you know, when I'm gone, they're going to beat each other's throats like crazy. Can you imagine? I, they were so mean to their father and hurt him so badly before he died. And also, I think, at a certain point, when children are born in such privilege, you're born a prince, you grew up in a palace, 
this, that, and the other. You grew up being principe, principe, excellence, this, that, and the other. How do you grow up and not feel so entitled, in a sense? I see what you mean now about the TV show being like child's play compared. <laughs> I mean, I was assaulted here. I mean, it's, and I've always been kind to them. Recently, I was doing an interview with a magazine, and they were saying, well, the, the children said that you don't let them come to the villa. And I said, one of them assaulted me, for goodness sakes. <laughs> I had, in front of seven people, there were seven sworn testimonies in front of Cagliazza, who was the leading criminal attorney here in Italy, and it went to the Questatura. How do you invite them over? <laughs> Not one of them called me, how are you doing at Christmas? You want to come over? Nothing. And yet we were lavish with what we could do with gifts and everything, because we were restoring the villa, and it cost a lot of money. And I've spent most of my inheritance here on the villa. So that's what always shocks me about this judge, like, the whole thing's odd, the way it's been auctioned and everything else. I'm curious if you feel like you've been the victim of a little bit of discrimination because you're American by Italian judges who are more... Well, this is, this is the disappointing part. This judge who is uh, ruled in this way is a, a woman, a young woman. That's what's disappointed. Mm. Yeah. I mean, they did so many things. I remember we had the IBG is what they call the lawyer for the judge. And we had a very fair IVG named Bianchi, and he came here every month, even sometimes more than once a month, and I always said yes, to see if everything was fine with the villa. And he came here on November 28, 2020, and he said everything was fine. And my lawyer called me and said, well, they, they want to come on December 28th. And I said, we're in lockdown. We're not allowed to even have people over for Christmas. That's what the prime minister said. We're in lockdown. And so he, he reported back and said, well, and, she, and I had just broken, badly broken my wrist, and I had to go to the hospital and have a, a steel plate put in here. So I was not feeling well. I'd just gotten out of the hospital. And, and so I said, well, I'm, I just got out of the hospital. I'm not feeling well. Could we delay it or stuff for a month or something? No, they feel like there's something very wrong there. I said, who's saying that? And they said, well, it's the boy's lawyer, Mancini, who always hated my husband because he represented my husband's father. And my husband's father, you know, there was a conflict there. Mm-hmm. And uh, um, the one who said, who, what am I, the father of a chemical engineer? Mm-hmm. And so, uh, <laughs> so anyway, uh, nonetheless, it was, oh, it, I don't know how to describe it, really. Oh, but anyway, on the 28th. So I said, well, this, that, and the other. And my lawyer called him and said, well, she's just got out of the hospital, and you were just there on November 28th. And the lawyer for the judge said, what, she doesn't want us to see the villas? There's something that she doesn't want to... I said, for heaven's sakes, tell them to come. Okay, they brought 15 people. I have photographs of them. Yes, during lockdown. It's against the law. 15 people, and they stayed for four hours on the 28th of December when there were bodies uh, being... uh, couldn't even have a funeral for people at that time. So many Italians were dying of this uh, COVID. And they stayed here forever, and, and then um, my lawyer said, I don't know what they're looking for in the basement, but they're looking for something. And he said, I don't know, but they're down there. They've been down there forever. And finally, they came, we found a leak. So maybe someone hit, I don't know, my lawyer said, it looks like someone t- took a sledgehammer and hit one of the pipes, you know. They came up and they said, well, you have 24 hours to fix the leak. Mm-hmm. I-, I called a friend of mine who's a leading restaurateur here, and, and I said, do you have somebody that can come in and fix this pipe in 24 hours? Because we're between 
Christmas and New Year's Eve on Friday, you know? And then he said, yeah. And so he sent someone over. They fixed it in 24 hours. So my lawyer called uh, the IVG, the lawyer for the judge, and said, oh, we fixed it in 24 hours. And uh, she was disappointed. Netflix needs to get on this and make a show <laughs> because this should. could be such a great show. Imagine, yeah. I mean, imagine that. I've met every challenge they've had. There's a man that lives in the building behind us, and he's a friend of Ignacio's. And they call Ignacio. When anything's going on here, they call him. And so uh, I'll show you the headless woman from 2 AD. We had made uh, an agreement with Capodanno. She was from the Ministry of Culture, uh, and she worked at the uh, Palazzo Altems Museum, where most of our statues are. She wanted to take the headless woman and use her in exhibition. So both my husband and I said yes, and then he had died, but we had the contract. And they said, we'll take this, uh, the, the woman from 2 AD, the statue from 2 AD, and then we will restore her and bring her back to you. And we said, great. The truck arrived. I mean, this is, weighs five or six tons. And they pulled it up on the thing, and they were doing all of that. And then they um, left. And apparently this man called uh, Ignacio in Milan. And Ignacio called Bonte. Bonte was at the gate with three groups of carabinieri. And because so, you were going to loan this statue on an exhibition. Bonte was told a friend of mine that was walking in the street, she's stealing statues and things. And I said, you can't even pick up a little statue. They're so heavy. I mean, they're heavy. You know, even like a, a little head of a statue is, is very, very difficult to pick up. And so, so then the carbonari came in. I said, he's not allowed in. And so Bonte was kept at the gate. And they came in, and I showed them the contract and that it was sanctioned by the Ministry of Culture. Then they said, this is ridiculous and everything, and they left. So it has been continual harassment and um, ugliness. It did not have to happen. No. It didn't have to happen. I was very agreeable. I loved them. We were, I thought, uh, you know, a very loving group of people. Unless this amount of money makes people go crazy. I don't know. My mother has remarried, and she owns her own home. And in her will, it says that my stepfather, if she dies first, can live there for the rest of his life. I cannot even imagine trying to kick my stepfather out onto the street. I mean, it's, it's, it's unconscionable. But then again, it's not worth a half a billion, you know, it's not a house that's worth half a billion dollars. So maybe, I mean, would that make a difference? I don't know. I'd like to think it wouldn't for me. In your family, if, you had, if it was worth that much money, it was a National Historic Monument. Yeah, that's what I was going to ask, was when you two are restoring the house, what is your hope that it eventually becomes a museum that's I somewhere? I a museum. Yeah. I really did. And that would be wise tax-wise, too. I mean, it's really smart in every way. I would love to, it to be a museum and uh, to be open, not every day, but sometimes to the public. But on the other hand, I've used all my money and everything here. I remember when Nicola was sick the first time and he was in intensive care at Fatih Beni Fratelli. Um, he said, I am so worried about what my sons will do to you. He said, I want to say that you have a right to lease the villa for, you know, so many years. He said, because I'm worried if something happens to me now that they're just going to throw you out. And he said, I can't, and I have to get out of here and do a new will. And so he, he said, she has the right to do whatever she wants to with the villa. She's renting it for me, et cetera. But I never rented it. Every penny I made from the tours and the dinners and all of that that we had here, 
everything went to keep up the villa, this 500-year-old five, villa. It's expensive. Yeah, a 500-year-old building. It's constantly falling apart, I imagine. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's like Mr. Mr. Planting's dream house, you know. <laughs> I guess if I weren't being subjected to all this harassment, I'd laugh about it all a lot. But nonetheless, I just really feel put upon. And now, I guess the only reason, you're kind of lucky, the only reason I'm really talking about it candidly because I'm fed up. I'm really, really, I'm fed up. Mm -hmm. with the whole thing. And I'm, I'm really fed up with the system that has abused me, that has allowed my sons and my stepsons and their lawyer to manipulate it in such a way that my life has become hellish here after I have given everything. And my husband died for this house. He did everything. And I can tell you how hurt he was when they were trying to declare him incompetent. Mm. He was devastated. And as I said, the day he died, he's reading a book on, on the physics, quantum physics. I mean, his mind was always sharp, always. And I certainly, all I did was, towards the end of his life, bathe him, hold him, read with him, love him, and give him all the love and consolation that he wasn't getting from his children. And that's what I did. And Bonte, after the funeral, went out on the steps in front of a number of people and said, this is the best day of my life. Can you imagine? Yeah, it was that kind of thing. Mm. I can't help but ask, Ludovico Ludovisi, Pope Gregory XV, we're looking at their portraits right now in this room. Living in this old building, in this 500-year-old building where so much history was made, so many important people lived. Henry James. And they were all here. Gogol, after he finished Dead Souls, was walking around the garden. Do you ever feel the spirits of these people in some way? I think they all like me because I've, I've only seen one ghost. And... Uh, it was Caravaggio. No. Yeah. <laughs> it's the was, ghost of I was sitting in the garden reading, and I kind of fell asleep, and then I woke up, and I saw what looked like the head of Caravaggio, but nude, uh, you know, had nothing on top, and then one of those kind of like, um, uh, you know, Tarzan, loincloth. yeah, loincloth and leather. And I looked over there and I said, oh my God, there's some crazy person here that's sneak, you know, gotten into the, through the security. I saw him and I, w I did like that, you know. When he s realized I saw him, he went bent down beneath, beneath a tree. It was so funny. And uh, I think he was shocked that I saw him. And then I called upstairs and I said, you know, I think there's someone who's uh, broken into the villa and they're on the grounds. And so they looked at all the security cameras and they said, no, there's no one there. And so <laughs> now maybe I was, you know, sound asleep and I was dreaming or something. Well, what, it, what is it like to be here at night by yourself. I, I would never be in this room by my, because he terrifies me, uh, Ugo Boncompagni. Um, he is was pointing to a portrait above our heads. Oh, Gregory the 13th, mm -hmm. and he gave us our Gregorian calendar, and he's the only pope that actually had a son. Some of them did, but they didn't claim them. He claimed his son Jacopo, and um, so this is the family that only legitimately descends directly from a pope. Yeah, so there's actually certain parts of the house that you don't want to be in well, at night. not by myself, because I used to tell my husband, because we love to sit in this room, it's such a cozy room, and I always say, you know, he looks so menacing and everything, because, you know, he was, in, he was in office when the Inquisition was still in right. full swing. He was torturing people in Piazza del Popolo. Yeah. And imagine when Caravaggio came to, um, or Michelangelo Marisi came to Rome, he would have come to the Piazza del Popolo. Mm -hmm. Imagine he would have seen you know, all the kind of 
prostitutes and things there. And then you would have seen the, the, maybe the Jesuits over here burning people at the stake. And, because he was very, both popes were very partial to the Jesuits, very. Mm -hmm. So can you imagine Michael and Jamrisi, he was 23 when he came to Rome. So in 1597, so he would have come in and he would have seen all of this activity because he was from Milan, which was much more conservative and Borromeo and such as that. So, and then luckily Cardinal um, Francesco de Monte mentored him and he lived primarily at the um, Palazzo Madama, which was, his, was, was Cardinal Francesco de Monte's home. That's why it took him so long to discover our Caravaggio. It's really, really quite interesting. When was this Caravaggio discovered? 1968. Really, so recently. Was because, but in a whitewash over mm -hmm. it. And it was probably he did that because, as head of the College of Cardinals and nephew of the Pope, and he was seen as the future Pope. But the Barberinis uh, pulled a few fast ones and Pope Urban became Pope. And the first thing Pope Urban did, because he was very, very threatened by this family, this family were real aristocrats. But the Barberini didn't have any titles as, as such. And so he needed to become Pope, Cardinal um, Barberini. Not to go back to Caravaggio, but I am going back to Caravaggio. How was the, the, the fresco discovered, and who was responsible for that? How did they find it? The ministry culture was here, and they, they saw that there was a corner that was kind of like golden. You know, they could see the paint. And Bellori had written about it in the 17th century, and he hated Caravaggio. So he didn't, you know, he said it's this stupid ceiling painting with, with Jupiter, Neptune, and Pluto, and it's, you know, and I think it's horrible, and this, that, and the other. And he was being so critical of it in his, in his book in the 17th century. So all these years, people have looked for it. People have gone around like, uh, is it here, is it there? And then, then just by happenstance, someone from the Ministry of Culture saw the corner and said, well, can we take off this white paint, you know? I'm sure he did it, because he couldn't afford to have someone from the College of Cardinals seeing such, something that was so explicitly nude and uh, physical, you know, and nothing religious in it. Astrological signs and planets and things like that that, that said, screamed, you know, that Copernicus was right. The Earth is not the center of our solar system. But the church was adamant about saying that the Earth was the center, because it fit into their narrative. So they said, can we take it off? And so my husband's father said, yes. And they, they removed it and they said, oh my gosh, this is Jupiter, Neptune, and Pluto. And then they carbon dated it and they took you know, the paint and everything. And, they, and then he put his face and his body on each one. Yeah. It's the way he looked when he was 23. And each, each expression is different. Like one, uh, Jupiter is looking across very, ten, you know, in a deep contemplation. And, I, you know, it's very McLuhanish. I think he's saying, yes, the Earth is not the center of our solar system. And Copernicus was right. And, and then um, you see coming up from the ocean, and Neptune, and he's riding the horse, and you can see his knee on either side of the horse. And then you see um, Pluto coming up from Hades, reeking of, of, of sulfur, and the face of Neptune it looks so cross. Every face is different expression, and he's looking at Pluto like, you're reeking of sulfur. Why are you here? You know, it's kind of like, you can imagine, you can, it's McLuhanish, it's whatever you think it is after you look at it. And then the dogs of Cerebus of Hades, it was the little black and white dog that used to follow um, Caravaggio around Rome. Mm. So it's so fascinating. And he did it in this little alchemy room. Just this little alchemy room, Cardinal Francesco de Monte's alchemy room. It's, you'll be so shocked how small it is and how close it is. You could almost touch it, you know? Mm. It's amazing. But it's also pretty phenomenal. It's the only uh, ceiling painting ever done by Caravaggio in the world. It's oil and plaster painting. Mm. So, yeah. And I had the University of Bologna here, and they uh, x-rayed and 3D imaged 
everything. And in fact, they um, have offered to come in and restore both Guercino's on this floor, the Aurora, which is considered his masterpiece, with the frame done by Agostino Tassi, and also the one upstairs with La Fama. So uh, I did a great amount of work here. I'd like the judge to listen to this. I mean, <laughs> my gosh, we never stopped working. We gave up our lives. And people would say, oh, what are you doing in August? Are you going to the seaside? Are you doing this? And I said, no, we're here. We're here all the time. And they go, oh, I'm so sorry. And I said, don't be sorry. We love each other. And we're so happy to be together, to read books together and talk to When you really love someone, you don't need to travel everywhere. Mm -hmm. And also, living in this house, you can tell. You don't hear the, the outside. No, you don't. It's like you're in the middle of the country. Mm -hmm. It's two and a half That's acres in the middle of, yeah. It's pretty amazing, yeah. And it also seems like if you live in a house like this with this much history, it's almost like you could take a trip accidentally just by, you know, taking this wall down <laughs> and all of a sudden... We found, uh, we found a missing um, fresco uh, of Pope Gregory Thirteenth greeting the five Japanese boys. Mm. And also we found um, a painting. I say we. Uh, Professor Brennan and his son found these things when they were here. They had a little camera because we'd read about them, but we couldn't find them. So we looked everywhere, where is this? Because the king came here and he wrote about it. Oh, we had dinner underneath this wonderful fresco of Pope Gregory XIII the greeting the five Japanese boys, and we couldn't find it. And I thought, where is this? So Corey brought this little camera, and we went in through the ceiling, which looked like a false ceiling, and he went up and he found it. Isn't that amazing? He found, uh, he was in our uh, room where we have our china and stuff, and he went up there and he found a painting from 1570, from when the house was built. Hmm. Isn't that astonishing? I feel like you also mentioned, last time I was here, that they found a telescope of Galileo's here? Well, we know that Galileo gave two telescopes to the family when he was here with Cardinal Francesco de Monte when Caravaggio was painting that. And so we're pretty sure that he influenced him with all the planets and things that you'll see in there. There are two planets, there are moons, it looks like the Earth, and then there are just so many specific things to astrology, really. And not astrology, well, some. But let's see, there's Pisces, the ram, the bull, Cancer, that go around the globe. So there are astrology, but for astronomy, too. It was all mixed up back then. There wasn't yeah. a separation between the two. No, but he would have been burned at the stake had they seen it. He, I think, wanted to protect Caravaggio, probably, and that's why they won. Who is he? Cardinal Ludovico Ludovici, and himself, because, I mean, he was head of the College of Cardinals. So imagine they would come here on Saturday night, and if they saw something this blasphemous, there must have been an enormous amount of jealousy towards people in his position and his position. Mm. You know, they were like, why can't I be cardinal, or why can't I be a pope, or something? Yeah. <laughs> uh, so Tiffany and I on the show many episodes ago. This is what I was going to mention, too. <laughs> oh, were you? Okay. We, we, we somehow got into talking about this, uh, that we both have the same recurring dream. And the dream... Oh, oh no, that's not what I was going to talk about. Gonna say. No, you talk okay, about this. We both had the same recurring dream, and in the dream, we're in some sort of a house that's where we live. And over the course of the dream, we discover that the house is way bigger and way more intricate than we thought it was. Right, right. It almost feels like living here would be like being in that dream for real. Yeah, like, <laughs> like sorry, there's no exit or something. <laughs> I don't even know what the question is, but is it anything like that? Sometimes it is, sometimes it is. But you know, the grief I have experienced at uh, the death of Niccolo was so profound, and it's such an individual journey. You can't explain it to anyone when you lose someone that you love so much. It is profoundly individual 
It's a journey that only you can make. Some people get over it quickly. They, but and I read the other day a psychiatrist said if you if you're grieving for more than one year, then you, it's it's called a syndrome. And the and I said then she's never been in love. What is she talking about? <laughs> you know, um, you don't ever get over really. Even when you think about your parents who may have died, you still think about them. The road of grief and sorrow of losing someone that you love so much is a very individual one and a long one for me. That actually leads me to the question that I kind of wanted to maybe end with. Um, Not really a question, actually. I wanted to tell you this. Katie lived here between 2013 and 2014 and attended Caravitas Church, as we told you before, the church that you, at least at that time, attended. Katie came back for a visit in 2018 in in late March or early April. While she was back in Rome, the first time she'd been back in a couple of years, we did an episode about when you come back to a place that you used to live and you see these little, what could almost be considered postcards or snapshots of people or things that you remember from before and have those things changed? Have they stayed the same? And she told a story about a woman that she used to see at church years before at Caravita. And she said, I remember seeing her, this very elegant woman, with long blonde hair, always very well dressed. And when I came back two or three years later, you know, and it had just happened at the time we were taping this, she said, I noticed her again. And she looked very sad. She was sitting alone. And she was playing with a wedding ring that she was wearing in a chain around her neck. And she just talked about this. She had no idea who you were. No idea. She just knew you as someone that she used to see at church. Now, a year and a half after that, I'm here, and I'm visiting the villa with you, and I took some photographs of you and of the, of the villa, and I posted them on Instagram. And I get this message from Katie saying, can you post another picture of that lady? I think I know her. <laughs> and it was oh, you. Affecting, you know? Yes, exactly. So, so I had to tell you that story. Oh, I'm, so I'm so glad. Well, and, and then when we, of course, with the death of your husband, it turns out that when I was seeing you, it was right after that had happened. Right, right after. Because it was 2018. Yeah. yeah. March yeah. 8th. Yes. So, so I'm sure I was ooh, really sad. Very sad. Yeah. Yeah. Because Sunday was such a big day for us to really... I never felt so spiritually connected as then because he was such a spiritual person. And we could share that and go there. And he would wait for me outside um, San Ignacio. Caravita is just down the street. And it's run by the Jesuits as well. And so, you know, we always had so much fun afterwards going with friends to lunch and things. And, you know, it leaves a vacuum. Mm-hmm. I mean, real, really profound. But I guess part of it, like maybe leaving here will make me less sad, I suppose, yeah. you know. Do you have a sense of where you are going to go? I don't know. Maybe New York, maybe, I don't know. Maybe I'd buy a place here, but what I was telling some friends the other day and my lawyer, I said, I am so afraid if I buy a place in Rome that these boys will continue to sue me all the time. <laughs> well, they will. They're, you know, they're litigious. Mm-hmm. I mean, look at all the lawsuits, my gosh. And now I understand the pain of what Niccolo went through because now I'm there, the recipient of their anger and whatever they have, angst that they need to work out. Mm-hmm. And then I feel sorry for them too. Grow up like that mm-hmm. and to be so full of this. I really feel no animosity towards them. I would really, if they were decent and came to me, I would say, okay, let's, and I did 23 times. I said, yes, let's, let's do it. And 23 times, one of the boys who's like, I call him the puppeteer, he made them 
uh, not do it and caused it to not happen and everything else. It would have been so easy. I don't get it. Can you give us one good snapshot of you two together before all this? Yes, of course. I mean, you mean like verbally? Yeah. Well, he was always sitting there, so I'm sure he's there now. And uh, we had the best time. Uh, During the warmer months, we would eat outside, dine outside. And we have, I don't know if you've seen it, but we have parakeets and parrots all running around the garden. It's just uh, magical, really. And we would read at least one book a week and then discuss it. And he would tell me about his book and I would tell him about mine. Then we'd switch books. And I mean, I really, I, I know that we did never fought. I, I can remember two instances that were unpleasant. Each time we both apologized because we're not like some people <laughs> which are, um, that are always right, you know, and they, everything else. He's very much like me, like, hey, I'm sorry, that's so stupid. Why are we, you know, like that? And that was that two instances. The rest of the time, every day was a joy. I mean, we had fun. We really, we enjoyed each other's company and it was great joy. And I did think that the kids loved us, but I guess they didn't. And so uh, it's been such a shock. But anyway, um, this will resolve itself. This won't go on forever because I won't live forever. And, and then it will resolve itself and there'll be other people living here. Life will go on. But this was a great experience. And I think my husband and I preserved a lot of the villa now. I think that we really have made a difference. Maybe a minuscule difference in 500 years, but a difference. And we did it because of, it was a labor of love for both of us, for each other and for the villa. Mm-hmm. Well, thank you so much for talking to Absolutely. us. Absolutely. Now, you want to see the Caravaggio? Yes. yes. <laughs> that's why you're really here. No. <laughs> Not so much. That's Princess Rita Boncampari Ludovici in the Villa Aurora in Rome in the spring of 2022. The villa, once again, did not sell when it went up for auction the second time. The next auction is scheduled for October 2022. Tune in to The Bittersweet Life, Bittersweet Moment number 166 this Thursday to spend some time with us walking through the villa. Your support of the show makes exclusive conversations like this one possible. It's a vivid demonstration of how feuds continue in Rome throughout the centuries, even if now battles are fought in court rather than with poison or with a knife in the back. My thanks go out to our newest supporters, Melissa in Australia and Carol in Ireland. If you love this show, support its creation by making a donation. For as little as $5 a month, you'll get bonus episodes, insider tips, and live meetups. And if you've never mentioned this show to a single friend, pull out your phone right now while you're still hearing my voice and text a quick recommendation. It can be as simple as, I think you'd love the podcast, The Bittersweet Life. You should subscribe and tell me what you think. You can find all the ways to support the show at thebittersweetlife.net. And until next time, for Tiffany Parks, this is The Bittersweet Life. I'm Katie Sewell. Thank you.